Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 26 of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mr. Stuart Crane, and we'll get a better introduction for Stuart here after the uh, intro music drops. But quickly, wanted to thank you guys for listening. We appreciate everything you do for the show, and uh, without you guys, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Also, want to take this time to thank our sponsors over at AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. To find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked up in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. I also want to give a shout-out to a new startup taking root in the wrestling world, Procure Clean. Their chlorine dioxide-based disinfectant is a simple, safe way to clean and disinfect just about any surface, from wrestling mats to tabletops. Simply add water and spray onto your surface you want to disinfect, and wait 30 seconds to eliminate MRSA, staph, and a variety of other infectious diseases. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their sport. If you want to learn more about their product, check out the links in the show notes below. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well, and uh, we can trust to deliver high-quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the story behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out maxeffortmuscle.com. All right, let's get this episode rolling. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it, and yeah, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show... We got Stuart Crane, and I'm going to kick it over to Josh for a quick intro to Stuart. Hey guys, for those of you who don't know Stuart, he graduated in 1987 from Ohio Wesleyan. Is that how you pronounce Ohio Wesleyan? I've always Wesleyan? wondered. Wesleyan. Wesleyan. Come on. Correct. Yep. There we go. I'm not the only one out there who doesn't know that, so let's just, <laughs> we're helping them out. With a degree in computer science, after that he spent over five years working on a range of technology products for Battelle Memorial Institute, before going on to co-found Definitive Home Care Solutions. He helped grow the company to be the leading vendor of management software to the specialty pharmacy and home infusion industry. And he sold the company for $43 million in 2013. Later in 2013, he founded TV Talk Network LLC, 
delivering on-demand 20-minute talk shows to smartphones, tablets, and PCs. We're very excited to have Stuart on the show today. Welcome to Columbus, Stuart. How's it going? Yeah, thanks a lot, Josh and Mike. This is fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I mean, obviously, you have a great background, a lot to talk about here. Kind of where we usually like to start and kick things off is always interested in diving into kind of like your childhood a little bit, your upbringing, and then up and through to college and graduation. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up actually in the New York area, so obviously being different than than Columbus, that was a interesting time and uh, I was actually grew up in New Jersey but we went into New York City to do all the things you do in there like in museums and the Yankees games and all that so it was a pretty typical childhood middle class and uh, had a nice little family we lived in a suburb in New Jersey so just had my uh, elementary school and uh, high school years there in a town called Madison New Jersey and it was great to, to, to grow up there but ultimately made it out to Ohio and never went back. Any siblings, or and what do your parents do? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, so my uh, my sister Charlotte, she's two years older than me. I mean, she she was great, and um, you know, we just kind of were really good brother and sister together, and no problems there. And then my uh, my dad was in the insurance industry, so he was really into that. And then he started selling software, which kind of got me interested in software. And then my mom was also in software, and this is back in the '80s when the computers were just getting, you know, started with PCs and that sort of thing. So they were kind of dabbling in computers, and they brought a computer or two home with them. And this is, you know, like I said, before the PC was really even invented at that time. So we got into it that way, and that's kind of got me exposed to computers and software. Were they entrepreneurial, or were they working for other companies, or? Both. I mean, my my uh, mom worked for a, a company that was very entrepreneurial, and she was basically one of the founders, and she worked in New Jersey, and then they moved offices into New York City, and I would go into New York in the summer times and help them with their databases and all their uh, contact management systems and storing all their information on computers and data entry and that sort of thing. So she basically had a mini business that way, and I didn't know much about it, but I knew you know it was something that I wanted to do. Right. And so clearly that kind of helped push you towards computer science as a major, right, in college. But what pushed you towards Ohio? Well, actually, my parents went to Ohio Wesleyan University in Delaware, and that's where they met. And uh, when I was a junior uh, going on a senior, my senior year of high school in New Jersey, I had to start applying for colleges. And um, I applied to a couple and I really didn't like them. And a couple of them I didn't even get accepted to. And my mom was kind of freaking out. And she's like, well, let's take you out to Ohio Westland because that's where, you know, um, we went and uh, we should be able to get you in there, you know. So we made the trip out to Ohio and I got the whole tour of the university. And uh, a lot of people around uh, Columbus know about Ohio Westland. It's a fantastic school. So I went and loved it and said, all right, let's sign up. And that's, that's where I went. And I was uh, admitted for um, acceptance in 1983 is when I started. And so obviously computer science changes as a major year after year in college. So dating back, what was mm-hmm. that, 10, 15 years ago, what was it like when you were going through and what exactly did your degree entail and how did that prepare you for when you got out? Yeah, so at Ohio Westland in 1983, so remember, this is quite a while back. It's a little this bit more than, a lot 10, more than 10 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so it's just because you look so young. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things in back in the '80s, like mini computers and mainframes that you hear about these days, but you don't know much about. Well, that's what you worked on at Ohio Wesleyan and at these colleges, and a lot of big businesses had mainframe computers and mini computers, and they programmed in languages like COBOL and Pascal and Lisp and and Basic and those sorts of things. So we learned operating system techniques, databases, and and programming languages, and so that's what I majored in. It was computer science at Ohio Wesleyan, and uh, it's different now, but there's some similarities. I mean, the core of computer science is really about algorithms and logic and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny because I, I know you said you listened to Jeff's episode and we interviewed him. Well, part of his master's was in the computer science range, and he talks about right. working on, you know, radios and things like that. And it's just, you know, it's totally different how much technology's changed over. It is. I'll tell you a funny years. story. I went to Ohio Westland, and this, when I got there, I brought with me a computer, and it was one that my mom had brought from her company. And this was before PCs were really invented, literally, because they came out more in like the 85, 86, and this was 83. So I was the only student at the entire college with my own computer. Think about that. Think about that right now when everybody has their all their laptops and their smartphones and there's computers everywhere. I was the only student with his own computer in the entire school. <laughs> So, yeah, it was pretty wild. So, so that right there kind of led me to start to think about, hey, that's, I'm kind of special in that regard. I really should be really good with computers. So that, you know, helped me out quite a bit. It's like showing up with a Lamborghini today. Right? In a way, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but um, so uh, were there any difficult challenges or anything in college that stands out to you is, you know, um, maybe something that people either wouldn't know about you or something you did in college that uh, you learned from? Well, I mean, Ohio Wesleyan is a liberal arts school, so you're, mm -hmm. you're learning everything, not just your major. So you're doing all those sorts of things. It's a big-time party school, and so you know you, you would party all the time and then not make it to class. And I didn't get the greatest grades because I would skip class all the time and everything. So that it was challenging in that respect that I wasn't really the best student, but I knew I liked computers. And I got into a lot of things with friends who they started getting computers. And so we had a little club, a little group of ours that just like... Like 10 or so of us had our own computers and we knew everybody else who had our own computers by the time this was like junior year senior year and it was fun so um, I spent a lot of time with these other kids who had their own computers and we would write software and do like hacking and phone freaking if you guys know about that stuff and this was kind of just getting going back then and it was phone a lot freaking. of fun yeah phone freaking which I is I want to know what that is yeah it was it was pretty <laughs> yeah. interesting yeah but and that's those are the things like Steve Jobs and Wozniak did when you know when they were working out of their garage was hacking and phone freaking and everything and that was big back then in the late eighties. So. so then you move on to Battelle and then talk a little bit about how your first job experiences kind of shaped you into your later roles and then how you became into an entrepreneur and creating companies. Yeah, so at Ohio Westland, I, I was um, really interested in finding a good job since I knew computers really well. Everybody kept telling me, oh, you know computers, you're going to get a great job. I'm like, yeah, I guess I will. You know, So I'm looking at you know all these magazines that are talking about computers and everything, and I saw an article written by a guy who worked at Battelle in Columbus. And it was all about how he was working on these exciting projects at Battelle. And I knew about Battelle because it was a very large company in Columbus, and they did all these research projects. And they were really into computers, too. Um, they were doing software and all these um, you know, military projects and government projects, but also private contractor projects. And so um, I called him literally out of the blue because I was so impressed by this article. 
and I said, hey, I'm a student at Ohio Wesleyan. I would love to come meet you. Maybe work for you guys someday, but I just want to at least meet you and see what you do. So I really just reached out to him, and he was pretty impressed by that. So I got a meeting with him and went down to Columbus, or down to Columbus, down to Patel in like 86, I guess it was my junior year, and met with him. And he said, well, you know, if we got something that comes along, I'll give you a call. And literally like three or four months later, it took some months, but he called me and said, hey, we got a project we're working on. We need somebody to work on it for us because we got you know too much to do can you come down and and get the the paperwork and all that and i went back down there met with him again and they gave me a little project to do they didn't hire me as a full-time employee or anything but i was like oh i got a project with patel and i'm a junior at ohio westland so that went really well and then he said well if you want to come on for the summer this is the summer between my junior and senior year you can work here with us at patel we'll give you more projects and you can just be like a contractor it was a full-time contract position for the summer. I'm like, fantastic. So I didn't go back to New Jersey, which I normally did every summer and worked back at AT&T and some of the companies in New Jersey. I basically stayed in Columbus and worked for this guy, Mark Gibson. And then his boss was named Dr. Richard Darwin. He was uh, one of the most uh, prolific uh, persons working at Patel, Dr. Darwin. So basically, we got this really good... Um, group going there that worked on transaction technologies like smart cards and ATM cards and that sort of thing. So I'm working on it all summer and the guy that I was you know initially introduced to that I met, he comes to me and says, hey Stuart, I'm leaving Battelle. And I freaked out. I'm like, what? You're leaving? And he's like, yeah, and if you do well, you can take my position at Battelle because I'm leaving. He went to Bank One. If you guys remember, Bank One was basically then that became J.P. Morgan Chase. So he went to Bank One. And so this was my uh, summer uh, before my senior year. And so I was kind of you know, blown away. I'm like, I got to get this position. So I worked really hard the whole year to work uh, with them. I obviously I had school and I had to graduate. I had to get, you know, get my a degree and everything but dr darwin said if you get your degree and get all good grades we'll hire you full-time and you can be here at columbus or at battelle here in columbus and that's basically what happened and i got the position of mark gibson the guy that i had contacted through this article and he was he was working on projects all over the world um, basically doing um, artificial intelligence and smart card technologies and one of the technologies I worked on a lot was AVI, which stands for Automatic Vehicle Identification. If you ever heard of EasyPass, this was before the EasyPass got big. And it's basically a tag that you put in your car and you go through toll booths just by going, you know, literally 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. You can just drive through there and it reads your tag and it debits your bank account. And all that was developed at Patel, where, where I worked there in that group. Um, so that was kind of neat to work on that project. What a beautiful technology. Something that just takes money out at 50 right. miles per hour. It's a great That's exactly what I need. <laughs> yep, yep, and that was that was the early days. It was like yeah. ni- like 1987 or so is when I started there, and um, so I worked there and, and um, really had a good quote unquote career, which wasn't that long at Patel. We can get into why I left and that sort of thing, but um, I really like Patel, and there's Patel is like its own little city, its own little marketplace because there's projects going on all over that company, and it's not just one company. It's kind of like hundreds of companies in one because you could be on one project and then it slows down and stops and you jump to another project. Um, and you're always looking for positions within Battelle to work on. And um, I don't know if it's that way to, to this day, but I'm sure it's pretty close to that because they get projects all the time like by the government and military and private. 
like we were saying, our one of our roommate works there, and he his claim is that there's a tunnel that leads underneath Battelle into Ohio State, where Albert Einstein used to go back and forth from Ohio State to Battelle. But he also told us he was hanging out with girls last weekend. So you can't, <laughs> yeah, you gotta take it for what it's worth. Yeah, but. there's there are a lot of tunnels in Battelle because I used to park at one area, and it would take me longer to walk from where I parked through all these tunnels to get to my office than it did take me to get my house driving to Battelle. And they're Jeez. all underground. There are a lot of them are underground. Yeah, I mean they're underground. Then you go up, then you go through this building, then you connect to that building. I mean, there's the catacomb. There's everything sounds like area 51 over there yeah well (laughs) they have so many projects that have been going on for so many years and switched over they always have to make modifications and build things for these projects so it's a neat place to work i loved it and you have to have kind of an expertise in certain areas to really excel there and i had some expertise but i was more of a jack of all trades and i was getting into computers and software and that was just getting going so it was tough to find a project where I was like a scientist because I wasn't a scientist. <laughs> you know, I was a computer scientist. So right, and I think you know the funny th- thing about that story is if you step back, like think if you wouldn't have sent that one email right to some guy you read about in an article, and it's uh, uh you know, wh- what do you think? I mean, for people out there listening, you know, pay attention. If you see somebody that you want to meet, send them an email. Find their email yeah. somewhere. No, I saw I saw that article, and actually, I couldn't send them an email because back then, email was like internal email to the company, but there's not a lot of external email. So I got the number, I got Battelle's main number, and I literally called the switchboard and I said, "I'm calling for Mark Gibson," and they looked him up in the thing, or they they might have known him, and they sent me to his extension, and his extension ran, and he picked up. Yeah, so yeah, I totally agree. You have to basically reach out and go for it and get people. Because if I hadn't done that, all these things, you know, that happened, you know, afterwards would have happened differently. Mm-hmm. And so, after uh, you worked, you worked at Patel for five years, correct? Uh, about that, yeah. About uh, that, something like that. And so, where did you go after Patel, and what I mean, you know, kind of what led up to you leaving? Sure. And then where'd you go? From okay, there? so this is an interesting story. Uh, what happened was I was working on. Um, a number of projects, probably three or four at the same time. And one of the projects was a software project that was um, contracted from a company in Columbus, actually called Impact Resources. They're no longer in business, haven't been in business for a long time. But they contracted with Patel to write software for them because they knew Patel was the you know, the big company in Columbus, and they knew software and computers. Well, this, they, Patel really didn't want to do the project, or they had, it, it was a small project. They look at big, t- big time things. Well, this company really just wanted this little program written for their um, um, consumer information database. So if you ever heard of Nielsen or um, um, the rating services, they were kind of like a rating service uh, for consumer information. So anyway, they contracted with Patel, and they gave it to me. Patel gave it to me and said, here, Stuart, you deal with this. You have to do it because nobody else really wants to do it. So I was working on this project, and it was going on for like, you know, three, four, five months, six months, and I was doing a good job on it. I was writing the software for this company called Impact Resource, and they're probably billing out Impact Resources hundreds of thousands of dollars, but, you know, I'm just getting a little lowly salary, you know, maybe 30 grand or something a year for a whole year, you know. So this is going on, going on, and I'm doing a really good job, and I'm going and, and showing what I'm doing and giving them the software and, and getting it done. And so the, the president and the vice president of Impact Resources approached me directly. They took me out to dinner and said, hey, you know, we've been doing this for a while. Why don't you just come on board full-time with our company and you can be the director of product development or have whatever title you want, you know, lead developer, programmer. 
and um, work on it all day, every day for us, and we'll pay you, you know, double what you're making at Patel, you know? And I was like, hmm, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> and so I had a decision to make because I was working for Richard Darwin, one of the most prolific, you know, um, guys at Patel, and everybody knew him, and I had a great job. I was traveling all over the place and doing good projects and working at Patel, a great, great job. And I'm like, well, should I leave? Patel to go to this small little, you know, entrepreneurial company in Columbus that who knows, you know, I mean, they were, nobody knew them really all that well. They were like maybe 50 or 60 employees at the most. And so I ended up deciding to leave. I'm like, let's do it. You know, I can always come back if I had to probably. And so I left and became the the main developer for Impact Resources, writing all their software for their consumer information. And I was working literally with the, the president and CEO and, and all of the key people, management staff at the company to basically deliver their product to all their customers. And that's where I learned a lot about business and learned about products, too, about how to deliver software products. And software is really critical to know how to create the software and make it work correctly and then deliver it and then support it. Um, we take for granted all these apps that are out there for Mac or for the PC or for your iPhone or for or web-based um, software as a service, SaaS apps. You take for granted that, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to build a software product and deliver it. And back then, there was no internet. So think about that. We're creating software, and there's no internet. And that's really what it was like back then. So I learned how to build software the right way deliver it to a customer and have them use it and be able to get them updates and make it work for them and i learned that over eh, probably two or three years after battelle really because working at impact resources and then then the long story short that company ended up going out of business you know so i hear i leave battelle to go to impact resources and they make a lot of mistakes and that was kind of the interesting thing about entrepreneurship and you guys you know how obviously interview a lot of entrepreneurs is you have to learn from mistakes before you can really succeed because that really helps you and what was nice about that is i learned all these mistakes that were being made by a company that it really wasn't my company i was just a work worker there now i was at the top but i wasn't at the very top like you know an owner a founder a ceo i was the developer of the whole system that they created so that was kind of a good learning experience to see that all fall apart and end up basically going bankrupt. And not only did it go bankrupt, they basically had to liquidate and I was part of the whole bankruptcy process and everything and worked with the bankers and the venture capital people and, and all that to um, finalize the company, you know, close it down. What were some of the mistakes that you saw them make that kind of led them down that direction? Well, I think, you know, the biggest thing was just, you know, management. It was mismanaged. And, you know, business is all based on profit and making money and having customers. And they spent way more than they should have in order to make the money coming in. So, you know, every month you run the books, you run the P&L, and you got more money going out than you got coming in. And so, you know, it's kind of basic, but that's really what happened. They just hired, 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 and they ended up when at the peak they had like 120 people on staff. So you think about 120 people times 40, 50, 60, or 80, or 100,000 a year, some of the people making six figures, and that's a substantial payroll. 
Well, if you don't have enough revenue coming in to pay all that, plus all of your other expenses, you've got salespeople flying all over the country and running up tabs on their American Express cards, they basically mismanage the company. So that's what I learned from that is, you know, manage the company properly and basically make sure you always have more money coming in that you have, you know, spending on the expense side and you'll be fine. You know, cash flow, cash is king. So they didn't do that. And then they basically tried to get bought out there. Like, well, if we can't make this thing go, we have other interested parties that want to buy us. And that really fell apart, and it was it was a disaster. And actually, at the time of, you know, there's some lawsuits and stuff going on. It was in the Columbus Dispatch and in Business First, all the stories about this company that was going bankrupt. Because, you know, bad news is always, you know, sells mm-hmm. in the newspapers. So that was out in the press. But, again, this was 1989. So this is pre-internet. This is pre-all that. This is when CompuServe was really big, you know, mm-hmm. those days. So, so, so that's really what got me into starting my own business is I'm like, well, now I worked at Patel and now I've worked for this company that's now going out of business and went out of business. You know, do I want to go back to Patel or do I want to have my own business? And I knew enough about software, uh, technology and business. I knew all these things. I'm like, well, I can do software. I can do that. So I started my own company, which wasn't the company that I ultimately sold. It was just a company to create software to create database software so you have software and then you have database software so database software allows you to track all this information so back in the late 80s and early 90s there was a lot of companies in columbus that they just wanted to have a system that they could put all of their customers in you guys have probably heard of crm which stands mm-hmm. for customer relationship management software well there was no crm moniker back in the late 80s but people needed to do that they used rolodex cards they used spreadsheets they used you know just whatever they scribbled on to track all their customers so i wrote a bunch of different applications they weren't called applications back then they were just called programs for pcs um, that would allow companies to enter all their information into a single database and store it on like a central server. And now we think, well, big deal that, you know, you do that all the time with the internet. Well, there was no internet. <laughs> okay. I keep saying that, but that's really <laughs> where I got good at building CRM quote unquote CRM programs or apps for companies in Columbus. And so I had probably like Oh, eight or nine or ten of these projects going on because I knew about projects too because that's what you learn at Patel is you learn about projects creating a project billing out the customer doing the work and delivering it and then getting paid and all that so you learn a lot about that in at Patel so I knew how to do projects and so here I got my own little business just building software so I was basically a one-man software development shop for companies in Columbus and that kind of leads us to the the company definitive home care solutions which you know has been 20 years in the making actually like 20 22 23 years in the making one of my projects was that project which was definitive home care solutions but at the time it wasn't a company it was just me writing a program for riverside hospital so that was the that was the project that i had and the interesting part about it, the way it's all started was literally a conversation with my neighbor. So I'm basically outside raking my leaves in my backyard and my neighbor's out in his backyard and we were backyard neighbors and we had never met each other. Well, what do you do the first time you meet your neighbor is you say, well, what do you do? And they say, what do you do? Well, I told them I wrote software and I developed database applications. He said, oh, that's interesting because I work for 
the home infusion specialty pharmacy division at Riverside Hospital, and we don't have any good software. It, it, we don't have anything. I can't really, all my work is all pen and paper. Literally, you know, he has to write all this stuff pen and paper to create his charts. Um, familiar with patient charting and charting systems, it was all pen and paper. So he's like, I've been looking for software. Can you just build something for us? Um, you know, based on what I need. And I'm like, probably if you show me all the pen and paper charts that you have, we can look at what information you're tracking and I can show you some of my programs, apps that I've written and we could figure it out. So literally, you know, within a day or two after meeting my backyard neighbor, we're already working on this, the ideas of creating a program for Riverside Hospitals home care department or home infusion uh, department. So that's really how it got kicked off. And this was in 1991, 1992 timeframe when we started that project. So talk to your neighbors more. Talk to rake, your neighbors. Yeah, rake you more find, leaves. You want to find million dollar ideas, go rake some leaves, that's folks. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's how it started. No, I, I don't think you can emphasize the no internet thing enough because I think I'm still wrapping my head around it. I don't, it doesn't make sense when you say the it. No internet <laughs> thing. No internet. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't I know, get it. I know. <laughs> I mean, basically, now what, what was starting to get big was called networks or local area networks. Mm-hmm. They called them LANs back L-A-N. then. So all, yeah, LAN. So all of the companies were connecting all their computers, at least internally, in their building so that when I brought up a screen and I saved some information, it would go to what's called a file server. And the file server would store all that information on on that computer. And those were networks or LANs or file servers, and that was big back then. So what I learned how to do is create CRM applications that could share, multi-share this information on one central server. So when one nurse or pharmacist or doctor would pull up the chart and pull the information and hit save, the person down the hall or on the other side of the building could pull, pull, pull up the information would be the same information but it wasn't in the cloud quote unquote it wasn't on the internet it was within that building so Mm -hmm. it was kind of like a mini internet okay that makes sense to me so um how long were you working on that software for definitive home care solutions and i believe it was called cpr plus okay so here's the thing there was no dhs definitive home care there was no cpr plus at the time we started it we just called it like the riverside client mm-hmm. system and right. we had and we worked on it literally for over a year maybe almost a year and a half with their no company it was just this program that we wrote we being i wrote the software but he knew what ha- how it what it had to do because i had no idea what they needed or what screen i knew nothing about healthcare, about pharmacy about home care i knew nothing about that but he knew nothing about computers so that's kind of like a marriage made in heaven as far as a partnership for a new business is one person knows one side of the business intimately and the other partner knows the other side of the business intimately so he knew what the program needed to do and what the the specialty pharmacies and the home infusion companies needed because he was one of them and i knew how to create the software to make it do anything they needed it to do because I knew how to create software better than anybody here in Columbus at the time. So we basically blended our talents to create this program. And so for about a year, year and a half, we were working on this program. And he was like, you know, there's thousands of other home care companies, home infusion companies all over the country that do the same thing that Riverside Hospital does here in Columbus. Why can't we take this program and maybe make it a little bit more generic or just make it not so specific to Riverside. And we could sell the same program to thousands of software or sorry, uh, pharmacies all over the country for thousands of dollars. So we started to 
kind of brainstorm that idea, do a little research on the companies that were out there. And it was a kind of a no brainer that yes, we could create this uh, product that was basically 90% done. We just had to do some 10% more to make it available to them. And so at that time, there was a recession. This was the George H.W. Bush recession, not George Bush, but a George H.W. Bush because it was 92, right before Clinton came into office in 93. There was a recession. So Riverside said, we're not paying for any more contractors. And so our project was essentially not going to be funded anymore anyway. So we went to Riverside and said, hey, we'll sell you the software for one dollar. We'll sell you it to $1. You become our first customer, and then we were, we're going to basically be, form a company. And that's when Definitive Home Care Solutions was formed. And we called the program CPR+. Plus. CPR stands for Complete Patient Records. So that's what we did um, in April of 1993. We founded Definitive Home Care Solutions. We already had a product, pretty much, you know. Um, and we called it CPR Plus, and then we started to market to all of the home infusion companies all over the country, which there were thousands of at that time. So then how does it grow from there? Did you guys begin to hire employees, or did you just stick to the two-man team, or what does that process look yeah, like? Yeah, so in the beginning, we just stuck to the two-man team. We worked out of my basement, and actually, coincidentally, I went back and worked for Battelle to, to really get some, some big bucks coming in for myself because they were just like, oh, we'll have you back, but we'll pay you as a contractor. So I was a contractor for Battelle. I had like eight other projects going on, and now I got this company that I'm starting with my neighbor, and so he's working full-time still at Riverside Hospital. So he would basically work like lunch and, and evenings and weekends, basically working on um, selling the program and demoing it to people. And I would work also those kinds of times. And so we would reach out to these companies by means of non-internet because there was no internet really back then. It was just getting going. And none of them were on the internet anyway. And we would do things like physical mailing. So direct mail we would send out because we would get their um, information off a of CompuServe, actually. Uh, we would go on a CompuServe and download what called SIC codes, SIC codes. Those are industry codes, standard industry codes. And we would put in home care, home infusion. And we would get all the companies that did that business. And then we would send out mailings to them and show them what we had in printouts. And then uh, we would get, de we would get demonstra uh, demos to do the demonstrations of the program over the phone. So Jeff would do all the demonstrations over the phone. There, there was no, you know, go-to meeting back then or Skype or anything like that. They would basically install the software on their computers. We would have it on ours, and then we would show them how the program worked. And the funny thing was is in the beginning days, and well, actually even into many years into the company, we would send them this 30-day evaluation copy of the program, which was the actual program, but it only would work for 30 days. And they would install it and start using it for real. They would fill prescriptions because all these companies were pharmacies. So they would fill actual prescriptions for patients. And so 30 days would go by and it would pop up with a message saying, you know, thank you for evaluating CPR plus your 30 day evaluation has expired. Please contact us. And he, we call us freaking out because they couldn't get into their software to refill the prescription and the patients waiting for their prescription to be filled. So that's where we, you know, we got them. We're like, ah, you know, I can help. Gotcha. You. Just yeah. going to need that credit card real number quick. real quick. Exactly. We'll get you up and running. Exactly. No, <laughs> we didn't take credit card back then. We did these leasing deals and that was really good because we would do, we would either take cash or check or we would do leasing deals where they would basically get a lease through this company that we offered and then we would get our cash up front. So we sold the system for like between five and $10,000 per copy. And um, we were, 
we were just starting to sell them at a pretty good clip um, about six months to a year into having uh, started the company. So we're doing, you know, three or four a month and then five or six a month and seven or eight a month. So we're starting to get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of revenue coming in. Now we're still, you know, paying ourselves a little bit and we got a little bit of rent. And then we started essentially getting employees at that time is like, okay, we've got all these customers now, like a dozen customers or 25 customers. We need people to service them you know they're calling in calling into our 800 number going oh i'm getting this error i'm getting this problem or my printer doesn't work or how do i do this or you know this isn't working you know it help desk you know think of help desk and so i couldn't do that all the time i did a lot but um so we started hiring the first people we started hiring were we'll call customer support reps and technical support people and then jeff would hire trainers to train people once they bought the program a lot of it wasn't slam dunk just go through the manual and figure it out yourself you did have to get trained on the software um, so we would hire uh, customer sort rep trainers then we started hiring salespeople to help jeff sell the program so we just kind of added on a few people as we grew the company and so and from my experience with all of the failures of my previous companies that that i worked for i was like hmm we got to make sure that we always have more money coming in than we're spending on our expenses as far as our people so we wouldn't hire people until we knew we had the revenue coming in from our existing customers um, and what was nice is our customers were kind of recurring uh, revenue customers because they would buy the program but then they would have to pay us for support fees maintenance fees and they would basically pay annually for that or monthly for that well, that program fee was a one-time fee then it wasn't like a software as a service model is today it was a little bit of both and that was kind of the good thing that we did is it was a one-time upfront where we would get cash so if we did a deal for fifteen thousand we would get fifteen thousand dollars in cash overnight which a lot of SaaS companies don't get right now because they got to wait okay well, I'm starting to pay you, you know, 99 bucks a month or or even if it's 400 bucks a month. It took you a long time to get to 15,000. Well, we would sell a deal and we would get the 15,000 right away and then we would also put them on a monthly, you know, 800 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month or whatever it was for for service. So that means they can call our 800 number. They could basically get all the updates to the software and we called it a maintenance fee. So that was we had the best of both worlds, and we didn't have the expenses of SaaS because now if you're a SaaS company, you have to pay for hosting fees and all the bandwidth and all of that, which isn't that expensive now, but in the day it was. Yeah, we're a SaaS company here at FMX, and it's like you know we would charge you 15 grand up front if we could do it, but we don't have you know a uniqueest product as you guys right. do. So you guys had yeah, we got place. lucky in that respect. We really did because these companies they they knew they needed it and they were making pretty good money because their pharmacies selling very high dollar medications, specialty pharmacies, injectables, infusion meds, and they're making good money and they're like 15,000? That's a drop in the bucket. They're like no brainer. So they would cut us a check for 15 or 30 grand or 5 grand. It depended on how big they were. I mean, every deal was different. If it was a small, little, tiny mom and pop company with like, you know, four employees, it might only be a six or seven thousand dollar deal. But we would do deals in the many tens of thousands. And then ultimately, we we did, you know, six figure deals. We're in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to sign the contract, and then they would get on uh, monthly service fees. So we did get lucky in that respect that we were in a in an industry that was very successful in there, and they knew they needed 
software to automate their business. How did you guys know how to price those people out? Did you price it off of number of employees in the hospital, or it was based on the users? The pharmacy, it was based on the users of the program. So we would basically um, have a pricing chart that said, you know, one to six users is you know like eight thousand dollars, and then this much per month. And then if you're like six users to twelve users, it's X. And then if it's twelve to fifty users, it's you know. So there were these ranges um, and buckets that they would fall into, and they would say, well. Based on the size of our company, we're going to need 25 users on the system at the same time. They would look it up and say, okay, it's going to be, you know, whatever it was, you know, $40,000 to buy it and this much. And then the beautiful thing was these companies were growing like gangbusters. So we would have tiers where, well, you're at 25 and they would call us up and say, hey, I can't get my 26th user in the program. Well, yeah, because you only purchased up to 25 users. And they would call us going, well, we need more licenses you know user like we would call them user licenses and so we're like well do you want a five user pack or a 10 user pack or how you know and we would make money that way and then we would make more because they had 30 now every every month mm -hmm. so as our customers grew we would get more money from them how did you guys monitor their licenses if you guys were on like this if they downloaded the software and you were on the same network how did that kind of work well i was i knew programming really well so in the very early days i could program the system to know who was logged into the system and I would have it so that when they logged in it would increment by one and then when someone logged out it would take away one so they could only have 25 simultaneous users in the system at the same time so it was all programmed so as soon as that 26th user tried to get in there it was all in there now we had a few companies that might try to hack it and try to you know fake it out or do something but they're all businesses and they, they don't they don't mess around with that they're like okay we got 26 let's you know let's buy legitimate another license for this software because they're businesses so it was all programmed right and so i mean was there a lot of competition in your industry was there a lot of people competing for your customers that's a good question we had about two or three competitors when we first launched the business and then about one or two or three more kind of came in while we were getting into it they were getting into it so at the peak like it was probably around uh, um, 2000 2000 early 2000s we probably had like four or five competitors maybe five or six like competitors that did exactly what we did. Mm. And we were sitting here going, you know, word processing software, there's like three programs. There's Word and WordPerfect and maybe, you know, now there's Google or whatever to do word processing for the whole, you know, globe. Well, there's seven programs that do home infusion software. This can't last. So we would know them really well. And there was M&A going on where some of them merged and some of them went out of business. And we were constantly looking to acquire them or some of them were looking to acquire us. But, you know, it shook out over the many 20 years that we were in business. But, yeah, we probably had, you know, like I said, five, six, seven competitors at the peak. Mm -hmm. Right. And DHS eventually grew to be the leading vendor in the industry, right? So what allowed you to kind of excel and keep ahead of the competition? Yeah, a lot of it was really focusing on these little details that the customers wanted and the customers needed that made the software do as many things as it could possibly do for them. So when, when we demonstrated the software and showed them all this stuff and they would compare it to, say, a competitor, they were like, look at all this stuff that CPR Plus does. 
And then we would also do a really good job taking care of the customers as far as customer support and service. So when we would go to do a deal, to basically get a deal, we would tell the customer or the prospect at the time, call you know, Joe over at you know, Billings Home Infusion or call so-and-so. We had references of all these companies that were really happy. And we were like, just call them. And, they, and, and so these, all these references would say, oh, it was the best decision I ever made. Just buy it. It's the best program by far. And so we always tried to basically take care of the customers and make the program as good as it could be. I mean, it's kind of obvious, you know, answers to the questions, but it really makes a difference when you basically make a really good product and the customers really love it. When you go to sell it to the next person, you have this, you know, asset built up that you can point to and say, hey, here it is. And there's so many other customers. So now we got to a point where we're kind of like the de facto um, software for the industry after a while because we sold so many we would have a lot of the employees that our customers they would putting on their resumes they would put like CPR plus experience when they would move around and they would move around and go to other companies and say oh I know CPR plus and if they didn't have CPR plus at that company they'd say you guys need CPR plus because we used it our last company it's the best thing since sliced bread and so it started become like the IBM you know of that industry and so that really helped us out quite a bit and then we the the big thing kind of towards the later years is we try to get big companies i mean you really if you really want to be the dominant player you got to handle from small mom and pop all the way up to you know the walgreens and the cvs's of the world and the big time companies that are you know hundreds and hundreds of users on the system doing tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for themselves and we got to be able to handle these companies because in the early days we just kind of had like kind of the smaller companies Mm -hmm. so that was challenging you said that it was kind of obvious answers but what i found was interesting in our space today it's almost the complete opposite so the leader in our industry is the system that almost does the least and keeps it as simple as possible the software has grown so drastically you know you can find something that does everything but people get overwhelmed so right i mean i guess good's a relative term but it's just interesting to hear that Back in the day, it was just do as much as you can, as much as you can, and then it's not like, oh, most people get right. overwhelmed by it, and now it's starting to shrink. Yeah, and, but that's a good point, though, because we did have <clears throat> challenges where people would get our program more in the later years because we had so much in there. It was overwhelming, like you said, and you're absolutely right about that. So what we tried to do was keep it so that, okay, you can go through the basics of it, but if you need this or you need that, which a lot of them did, you can turn it on. And healthcare is a very picky industry as far as all of the insurance needs and all of these HIPAA requirements and everything and billing. And so they had to, all these little things had to be in there, but you're right. You couldn't make it too complicated because then they were like, oh, that's just too much for me, but they knew they needed it. So we would have to sell it in such a way that, well, we can get you up and running and show you how to use it. But we also had all these other customers that were using it. And they, a lot of times our prospects would want to go on site and actually see the program in use at other companies. So they would literally get on planes or drive hours just to go to another company that used our software and walk around and watch these other companies use the program because they wanted to, you know, they wanted proof. It's like, how do you do this? You know, so we had a lot of that going on. So it almost seems like the biggest win is in the upsell. You get them on with just the basics what they need and then right. every time they need something, you're their personal. Yeah, at the peak, we probably had like 20 what we called modules and these modules were add-ons, like you said. So they could add like, back in the day, there was Palm Pilot. Now it's, you know, smartphone interface and web portal and, and all these different add-ons that we programmed over the years and we just more and more. And the next thing you know, you have a, a suite of 
15, 20 different add-ons that you can now sell to this huge customer base. And that was a big part of our revenue stream was selling, upselling, yeah, like you said. And that was important. So, and you do that for 20 years and you get to a point, how many employees are you guys at and what does the process look like when somebody approaches you and you guys are about to exit the company? Yeah, so we had been getting um, approached for really the whole um, 20 years, for the most part, from different companies looking at us, just kind of, you know, nibbling around, say, hey, if you guys ever want to do something, let us know, or more serious ones that actually sent us offers and that sort of thing. So we always knew that there was the potential to sell the company. You guys had total equity at that point? Yeah, so Jeff and I were 50-50 partners of the of the business and we never took outside funding so there was no other owners in the company we never had debt either well we did have debt when we do we did two acquisitions ourselves we actually acquired two companies ourselves two competitors um, and we financed those with debt and paid that off so we had no debt and no outside funding so Jeff and I owned the whole 100% of the company so we kinda could call the shots as far as what we wanted to do as far as selling the company and there's a lot of ways you could go about it. I mean, companies will come to you directly and want to, you know, do the dance and basically uh, try to acquire you and, and buy you. You have private equity that wants to invest in you. Um, and then you have brokers that want to come in and basically broker your business, you know, investment banking firms that, that come out. Oh, well, we'll put you up and uh, do a process and get you out in the market to sell. So you have all these dynamics going on all the time, but it's not like it happens all at once. It, it takes years and years for the evolution of an acquisition to happen. And in our case, we actually went through a total of one or two or three companies that came directly to us and gave us LOIs, letters of intent over the years. And we had two times that we went out to a process using an investment banking firm and going out um, to get bids for the company. Ultimately, we um, we did use one of the companies that was a um, investment banking firm that we used to go out to bid, and that's how we sold the company was through that process. But it was that in combination with actually two or three companies who were um, companies that wanted to acquire us that came at us and so we're like well if we've got one or two that are interested in us why not 20 you know because the more people you can get competing for your business the more value you can you know raise of the company mm-hmm. so did we miss anything in terms of you said you guys acquired two other companies mm-hmm. was there anything in particular in there that's you know kind of notable to talk about because I know that that process can be either great for some companies or catastrophic depending on how you execute it and what the process is like and you sometimes don't know what you're taking on in terms of their internal processes sometimes they look better from the outside than what they really are and yeah the acquisitions take so many different um, turns and twists depending on what the company is doing that's doing the acquiring and then obviously what the acquirer is doing but in our case we were only acquiring direct competitors so we knew pretty much inside and out what these companies were doing we knew the competitor, competitor. We knew the customers that they had on their software, and we knew their revenues. We knew their profits. We knew their employees because we saw them at sh- trade shows. We talked to them all the time. It was kind of like we knew so much about them. It wasn't that hard to extrapolate. You know, okay, what kind of um, ROI, return on investment, we can get if we acquire them. Now we had very sophisticated you know models that looked at you know worst case middle case and best case scenarios when we acquire them what would happen post acquisition with customers coming onto our software employees you know in their um, situation whether we brought on their employees and all those kinds of things so you know but it does it takes time to look at them and then 
obviously the deal itself, you know, what do they want? And, and what's their equity structure? Are they owned by a larger company? Are they owned? Do they have bank? Because we had one company that we acquired. They had a whole pile of debt with a bank. You know, they had um, hundreds of thousands of dollars that they owed to the bank. So they they that wanted to they wanted to get that retired. Well, we basically did a deal where oh, we'll come retire that debt and then acquire you. And that worked out for um, for the owners of that company. And then another company was owned by a larger company much larger than us that just wanted to you know diversify or, or divest of, of that uh, software arm and that worked out really well as well but really it's a matter of knowing who you're acquiring and really doing due diligence so if you're on the acquiring side you're doing due diligence on who you're acquiring and then if you're getting acquired you have to have all your ducks in a row and have your information available to the companies that are looking at you to 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 acquire Absolutely. And so um, you finally sold the company. Uh, and uh, how, like, was there any difficulties in that process, uh, you know, with the broker? And after selling, where did you go? Well, the, the process of selling a company definitely takes a, a quite, quite a long time. In our case, it, from the start to finish, from the start when we got started getting LOIs to the time we actually sold was probably about eight or nine months, something like that, which I guess is not that long. It's less than a year, but we're talking about many, many months of negotiations and working with uh, investment bank. I don't know if you know the process of working with investment banker, but it, it's, it's, it's lengthy and you really have to do a lot and have all your due diligence ready and all your information and then go out and do the process and then get bids in and then accept a bid or not. And then, and then in this case, in this, in this final case, we did accept a bid and then you have to finalize the actual stock purchase agreement and get all that done. So challenges really were just, you know, um, every day something could come up that could, you know, crush the deal, you know. And um, as long as the buyer really wants to buy you and they're firm with what they're going to acquire you for and they're not going to change their price and we're going to sell for that, it moves along, but you have a lot of legal work that needs to be done uh, a lot of due diligence really is that and it just day after day after day but i don't in our case we didn't have any huge challenges that just said oh this is going to fall apart i mean we had some some deals with um companies in the past that were one-on-one -on -one and those fell apart and, and i don't want to get into those because they're just they could take the same amount of time as this whole podcast but <laughs> we those those didn't work out so the going with the investment banker was the best thing really for us because we got the highest bid um, because that's when, when you go through a process, you basically have a blind bid. So you have all these bids come in and nobody, you, nobody knows who anybody else is bidding or what, what their bid is. So we see all the bids and we can take the highest one or maybe the best one, depending on our criteria for sale. Um, so we took the highest one in this case and the one we wanted to sell to anyway. Um, and it, it just takes time, takes a lot of time, but you know, the actual day of closing is, is crazy because a lot of the employees, they know they have no idea this is coming. And we had 75 or 80 employees at the time we sold. So not a lot, but still, you know, that's, mm -hmm. it's numerous. And, and some of these people have been working with us, working for us for 10, 15 plus years, you know, full time. And that's their life is working for CPR plus as full time employees, you know. And then they come in one morning and their company's been sold, you know. So it, it was uh, it was definitely some uh, some tears shed that day and was pretty wild. Now we had probably um, five or ten of the internal staff, like the management team, that knew because they had to get informed at a certain point before 
um, it was, um, you know, the, the right. transaction closed. So they knew about it because they had to do some things with the deal. But, um, but yeah, it was, um, it was a big day and all that and um, went very well. And um, the company that acquired us was very professional. They were actually private equity back. So private equity firms, very professional. These guys are the, one of the largest private equity firms in the country. And so they, they know how to, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's. And, they, they, you know, they do a good job with the deal and all the deal terms and everything. So it was great to sell to them because they were just so professional about everything. Um, and then, um, as far as, you know, post acquisition, um, I only stayed on literally like a week. I mean, I basically didn't stay on at all. I mean, I, for a week there, I just got my stuff together and said my goodbyes and talked to a bunch of people and got my stuff together. Cause I had told them I wouldn't be continuing on with the company. And then my partner, he stayed on with the company. Um, he wasn't sure how long he was going to stay. It just depended on how things went, you know, after the acquisition. And he ended up staying about six months or so, and then he left about six months after the acquisition. Um, but the company that bought us is, you know, they just do their thing because that's, you know, that's their business is basically um, doing roll-ups. That's kind of the term in, in these industries where they buy and acquire these companies and combine them and be, try to make a bigger entity from smaller entities. So we were just one piece in a large puzzle of putting together um, home care software management systems. It's interesting hearing that story because, you know, in athletics and uh, Mike and I competed for a little while in college and it's like you constantly, every time you go to practice, you're envisioning, you know, coming all American, national champ, whatever your goal is. And now professionally, it's like the only thing I envision every day is like wanting to start my own company and exit it for $21 million. You yeah. know, like I just yeah. picture that day and I, you know, you picture yourself all American and you walk off the mat and you're raising your arms in the air. Like, I think that's what I would do in that situation. Yeah, it was definitely a great day and I was very proud of everything we'd done. And it was, it was kind of like that. And uh, we had a big dinner that night with all the, you know, like the key management staff of our company and then our spouses. And then obviously the company that bought us, they had their CEO come in and people um, that were worked on the acquisition. We had a big dinner, huge table over at uh, one of the Mitchell Steakhouse. And it was just great, you know, just to kind of celebrate, you know, what we had just done. And obviously there's still work to do after the acquisition, but I knew I was leaving. So um, I wasn't like all freaked out about, oh, now we got to integrate the systems and get the cut, you know, it's like, yeah, they can deal with that, you know? So yeah, it was, for me, it was more like cheering, you know, because I was done. And I mean, it's obviously hard to leave the company that you had started, you know, 22 years ago and founded and you've been working for, for 20 years, but you know, I was ready to, to move on. And, um, I was excited about podcasting, which we're doing today. And that was kind of neat. So <laughs> I did some things with podcasting actually, you know, right after I sold and that was kind of fun. How old were you at this point? Well, this is just a couple of years ago, so I was like 49. Yeah, internet, full internet now. If we can, oh yeah, made it to the internet. We can get back in that. <laughs> well, yeah, that was kind of feels good thing. just to say it. Yeah. <laughs> well, CPR plus the software really mm -hmm. moved to the web, and that's what we tried to do is kind of use the internet to really take advantage of it because it did start out without internet, and then it's like, well, how can we integrate all the tech, you know, the technologies that are out there with the internet? So we did a good job with that. So when we sold, we had a lot of good things that we had done over the 20 years or the company that bought us was like okay they've leveraged the internet and those sorts of things so that was kind of fun so that, that was kind of another part of my question is the company doing well now how did they do post acquisition 
Um, well, you know, obviously not. I'm not privy to specific details of financials and all that, but I do keep in touch with a few of the the employees that are there, and um, you know, they've made changes for sure. But I think they're doing fine. I mean, they're definitely all the customers seem to be you know still on board with them, and but they they do a lot of things differently, you know, than Jeff because Jeff and I we can make decisions. My partner and I we can make decisions and do things at a whim and say this this that. A big larger company they move a lot slower and. And they, they put pieces together with other companies, and it's just a different world, you know. So, you know, to your question of are they doing well, I mean, their um, view of doing well would be, okay, we bought 12 companies. We were one of 12, <laughs> you know, for $300 million or something like that. Now we're going to sell this whole suite of companies which is all one in one company for a billion or a billion and a half or something you know i'm, I'm just throwing out numbers but that's what these private equity firms do that's what private they do business. yes <laughs> private equity is is a big business guys it's huge and that and so our little acquisition is just that to them it's just a little and it's just they just crunch some numbers and say okay we'll fit that in here it's, it's a puzzle they put the pieces together and so success to them would be like i said all these companies are now all kind of grafted on each other and they have a big parent company and they sell it to um, GE or Siemens or um, you know Google or somebody big that basically will pay them you know an ROI of three, four, five or hopefully maybe seven to ten times what they put in. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're putting in hundreds of millions and wanting to get back billions or they're putting in tens of millions and wanting hundreds of millions. I mean it's all ROI. Everything is ROI. So until they have an exit I can't tell you that they're doing well, quote unquote, from their standpoint, because maybe they're not doing well from my standpoint where maybe they're not as profitable. I don't know that. But maybe they're doing that on purpose because their ultimate goal is the ROI for their shareholders, you know, for their limited partners that are the investors of the private equity. Yeah, it makes sense. New goal might get rolled up. That's cool. Get rolled up. That's, <laughs> that's right. what it is. It's rolled up. Get rolled up. <laughs> well, yeah. If you, if you do any research on M and A and um, and look at mezzanines and roll ups and all that, that's what happens in especially in software and technology. Putting pieces together to make a bigger company and private equity is really where the money comes from because it's private equity money is like pension funds and and money from large and institutional investors that they they are in the big leagues. They're talking about you know literally billions of dollars, and so they want to do bigger deals you know so they have to take small ones and put them together to make the big deals so that's just how it works you know and we were just one little tiny cog in the wheel that's all you know absolutely so after um after the exit you mentioned briefly you that you worked a little bit with podcasts that mm -hmm. was a tv talk network right right, right. And so let's briefly yeah. go over kind of what tv talk network did and um how you kind of put that yeah, so, you know, actually, before I even sold the company, I was really getting into podcasts, just enjoying them and doing them, and I was researching, you know, how it all works. Cause it was kind of a new technology, and you had an iPod, which you could get a podcast for, but you'd have to plug it into your computer and download it and do all this funky stuff, but then the smartphone came out, the iPhone and these Androids, and then all the, all the uh, podcast software went to, essentially, apps. So now anybody can listen to any podcast anytime, anywhere. And I'm like, wow, this is going to take off. It's going to really grow. And people are going to listen to podcasts. It's kind of like on-demand radio, you know, because everybody would watch TV. And then they got DVRs. And it's like, oh, wow, we can just record it. It's kind of the same thing with podcasts I saw. So I started listening to 
a lot of podcasts, but not just listening to the podcast, but learning about the technology and learning about how they were put together and who created them. And so I got in touch with a bunch of um, early adopters of podcasting and uh, podcast answer man like Cliff Ravenscraft and some of these people that created these podcasts uh, from the beginning and learning about it. And I'm like, well, what, what area of podcasting would be neat? And I was always into watching really cool TV shows. You know, there's all kinds of great shows that everybody has their own TV show that they love. I mean, even if it's just one or two, everybody has one or two. So I would look on iTunes and see that there was definitely a bunch of um, what they call after shows or podcasts about TV shows. And some of them were like an hour and a half long and they would just go on and on. And they were okay, but the quality was bad. And it was just, and they would have like, you know, four different hosts and it was hard to follow. So I'm like, what about if we create a podcast that's just two people, experts on the show, and they could do a podcast about the TV show actually the night that it airs as a new episode. And then we basically post it out to iTunes that night or by midnight or whatever. And then the next morning, people can go to work and listen to the podcast about the show that they watched the night before. Now, now back then, there wasn't as much streaming going on, so pop, people had to watch it, you know, or they would DVR and maybe watch it that night, you know, without commercials. But anyway, that was the idea, and it went pretty well for a couple years. We basically produced um, all the top TV shows, all like the primetime ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox shows. We had podcasts about them. We have two hosts, and they would do about 30 to 40-minute podcasts, just like a kind of commute time and uh, – it was it was something that um, really was fun to do, and I, it got up to a point where I had so many people doing these podcasts that I'm just like, well, we got to get some some revenue here, and I kind of you know um, broke my own rule, and I had I had a lot of um, expenses on creating the podcast and and producing them, but we couldn't get a sponsor. I mean, we were looking at Ford, we were looking at some partnerships with some big companies, and we were pretty close, but just never could you know, close the deal with any big sponsors because the sponsors would really have to pay for it, you know. And I, I could cut the expenses back quite a bit, but um, at the time I had some medical issues and I'm just like, okay, let me just, you know, slow things down. And then we closed it down, I don't know, about two, two and a half years after we started. But it was fun. It was kind of like a fun thing for me to do. Right. And, and it was called TV Talk. And they, so you would have TV Talk NCIS or TV Talk, you know, Dancing with the Stars or TV Talk you know, shield, <laughs> you know, all of that. And so it was a brand that we created. And so if you, if you listen to one TV talk, you kind of knew what you were getting with, if you listen to another one, it was kind of the same format. So did you guys end up selling it or just shutting it down? No, I just shut it down. Shut it yeah. Down. I mean, basically, cause there was no other, um, I was the only one that basically owned the entity. Um, I still use the entity for some projects I'm working on now, but, um, so it's not really fully shut down. The entity LLC is not shut down. But we stopped producing the podcasts. Yeah. All right. So, cool. so, so what are you doing today then? Well, now I'm working on uh, for quote unquote business or anything professional. I'm working on Amazon Echo development. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Amazon Echo, um, but it basically is a is a platform that you can actually write programs for. You can write. They call them skills. But the Amazon Echo is something that really I think is going to grow by leaps and bounds. And then you also have Google working on the Google Assistant on their Pixel phone. You have um, um, Siri, and Siri's getting bigger all the time, and they're opening it up to developers. You have Cortana, and so you have a lot of area going on right now as far as voice and voice assistants and voice technologies. So I'm developing applications for the Amazon Echo, but I'm trying to look more towards a business 
uh, slant because everything for the Amazon Echo now and even for Google Assistant or OK Google and Siri is more consumer. So all consumer apps. But I think, you know, businesses, just like when the iPhone came out, it was all for consumers. And then the business people were like, well, I want to use my iPhone for work. Well, no, no, you got a BlackBerry. You need to do a BlackBerry. Well, eventually the iPhone basically penetrated and everyone started using the iPhone for business. Well, I think that same thing is going to happen with voice technologies. It's going to start out with the Amazon Echo and Siri and OK Google and all that, but it'll go business. So right now I'm developing apps for the Echo, but I'll, I'll work on Siri as well and, and or Cortana and these others. So when you say goes business, like do you have, and you probably can't tell us an exact example of what you're working on just for sake of, of what you're doing, or maybe you can. What yeah, would be no, an example? absolutely. So the biggest example, the one I'm working on the most right now is metrics. So if you're ever familiar with KPIs, mm-hmm. key performance indicators or yeah. metrics. So there's a lot of dashboard software out there, and there's systems all over all over the place that give you metrics from anything from technical metrics of websites and Google Analytics and that all the way up to high level um, performance of businesses and their overall sales and I mean it goes on and on metrics is actually enormous so um, with these dashboards what do you have to do to see the information you have to open up your laptop or log into your system or go to your smartphone tap the thing pull it up go it takes a while what if you could just ask it what was our sales yesterday 2.7.5 2.7.5 million dollars, you know, or whatever it happens to be, you know, or, or how many orders have we had since 12 o'clock? So these KPIs and these metrics that are all over the place, that are everywhere, should be accessible via voice. Um, so Apple just came out with these headsets that are wireless because they got rid of the, the headphone jack and they're putting in the ears. Well, they're not just for listening to music. They're basically going to be for Siri. So they have a button on them that you can tap your your new earbuds or ear pods, whatever they call them, and you'll be able to talk to Siri through that. So that will go business where you have it in your ear and you can just ask it business questions. So what's the business question? You, you name it. Whatever it is, software will be developed. And I'm actually writing ours as an API. So you have an API that's living, kind of that connects into all these systems. And then basically you build an API that allows you to access any of this information. So it's a platform for any business to basically get what we call voice metrics. Um, so a voice metric would be a way to get your metrics by voice. So... I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the business application right. for voice. Yeah. That I so, so, hey, Siri, generate a KPI for X part of my business. Yeah, well, you would basically do that in the back end. It's already say, set up. And then say, you would wow, say... That would be impressive. Yeah, you, know, you would say, hey, Siri, how many orders did we have yesterday from customer XYZ? Or just, you know, what was our revenue okay. last week? Or if you're an Amazon seller, how many widgets did I sell last week. I mean, because right. all these Amazon sellers out there, they use this app, um, the Amazon seller app, and they, they live in this thing. Well, they about to bring it up and scroll through it. What if you could just say, how many sales? 15. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's you just talk to it. Yeah. No, so, um, so I have really like cool. three or four Echoes at my house that control a lot of things in my house that you can play music through. You can ask it questions and do all kinds of things. So basically, I'm very well versed with kind of like it, 
just like I was with database applications back in the day, I'm well versed with how voice technologies work and in the Amazon Echo, but it, I think it's bigger than the Echo. Like I said, okay, Google, they're going full all in. They just came out with a phone a couple weeks ago called the Pixel, mm -hmm. the specific purpose of which is to give you an assistant, a voice assistant. That's the whole reason they built this phone. And Siri just opened up for um, developers to program. So it's an area that is gonna boom on the consumer side, we know for sure, but I totally feel that once all these consumers are using all these voice apps, the business people are saying, well, I use it all the time at home. Why can't I just get my business information from it? So that's what I'm working on right now. It's kind of fun because it's very early stages and um, it's kind of like before the wave. I think if you would introduce it now, it'd be like, huh? Yeah, you know, but it'll come. It, it'll happen. So if I have something right at the time where everybody's using these series and OK Googles and, and Amazon Echoes, they're like, oh, well, I get it. Yeah, I can just ask it for my whatever it is. Right. It doesn't have to be a metric in the sense of you're thinking about yep. it. It could be anything that they want right. from their business. Absolutely. No, yeah, I think it's brilliant. Right now we use, for our software, we have a series of dashboards, and they built it. A company called SciSense built it as an API that we plug into. Right. Um, and I love the business model, too, because if you just build it as an API, then you can just sell it to all these other companies rather right. than having to um, be anything unique. So that's awesome. Yeah, so there's a company called Twilio that built an API for telecom and for text messaging and phone calls and all that. And Twilio, the, the app is for, or it's an API that anybody, any developer can basically tap into and use. And then if, the, if you use it a lot, you pay. And they just went public a couple months ago and they're a huge company now. They're massive and they're huge. Fortune 500 companies use Twilio. So the whole concept of developing an API so that it can just be used as a platform is really the way I want to go rather than just writing a one-off for, for each company. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. You said you got bad grades in college, and if that's any indicator of true intelligence, I think yeah. it's completely wrong because, I mean, <laughs> this whole episode has disproved. I mean, right, you're extremely, agree. extremely yeah. intelligent in what you do. It's awesome yeah, I wouldn't to hear put a whole lot of you know, staking good grades, you know, it just some, wasn't something that I was really into. I, when you into something and you're excited about it, then you get passionate about it and you can make success, you know, and Absolutely. grades wasn't my thing, you know, but what computers were, and I was really, really into that. Well, let's keep, let's put a lot of stock in grades because I'd actually, it's the only thing I've so far excelled at. Yeah. So we can keep, we can keep well, our stock there. You can be successful yeah. with good grades, grades too. <laughs> grades, grades don't pay you money though. That is true. <laughs> Mine have actually only taken money away from me. So, but, right. uh, so then, you know, as you went through your story and, and you are to where you are now, and I think what I like about it the most is the fact that it's just you saw a problem, you knew how to fix it, you knew what you were skilled at, you bootstrapped it. It's just like the backyard, like I could do that if I got with the right team kind of story. And that's what's so cool about it here. You know, here's so many things about Snapchat that blows up through two developers and hits a huge network. And it's just like these unicorns. But your guys' story is just an authentic kind of, you know, very vanilla kind of growth right. company, which was awesome. Um, but now you're at a point in life where pretty much, I mean, financially free, you can you can live your life and be happy and do what you want to do, and you're doing some things for fun. Is there anything else in life that you really want to experience? Are you into, like, climbing mountains mm -hmm. or anything else kind of crazy? Yeah, well, I mean, I have two kids in, in, in high school, well, middle school, one in middle school, one in high school. So with two kids at that age, 13 and 15, you know, I don't want to be climbing mountains just yet. I mean, maybe I'll be too old when, but really, you got to be there for them when they're that age because the next thing you know, I snap my fingers, they'll be off to college and then they'll be 
on their own with their own lives who knows where you know so it it goes by fast so i'm not going to really get too involved in anything crazy or even this amazon echo programming stuff is just kind of something to keep me busy and keep me excited but really my family is the focus number one and there's a lot going on with their activities you know kids especially that age they're doing all kinds of stuff so i'm 100 percent focused on them and on the family and on the, and the house and we have a lot going a lot of stuff going on at our home and everything so that's the that's the number one focus but again that is only going to be for so long you know i mean uh, my son's in uh, middle school he's eighth grade we're literally you know four or five years from now he's even going to be off to college and gone out of the house so i don't I, i'm not looking to um do anything big like the climbing mountain stuff although we do a bunch of travel we were in italy this summer that was fantastic but that was a family trip you know we go to hawaii at uh, least once a year, sometimes twice a year, and like to go skiing. So we like to do trips and travel and do that, and that takes time as well. But really with school and church and, and all the things you got going on, it's like, okay, you know, you don't really want to try to tackle too much, you know. And it's nice not having a lot of big load on my shoulder, you know, just like, hey, I've got the family, let's take care of them. So you don't want to buy a podcast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Podcasting is cool. I love it. I'm just kidding. That's funny. Yeah, you know, and I think, uh, you know, probably one more question here I want to ask you before we get going. I know, uh, just in case any of you are trying to date this episode, the Indians are playing Game 7 tonight. That's right. So uh, got to get back and check that out. But um, the our slogan for our show, mm-hmm. and it's one of the main questions we ask all our guests towards the end of the episode, is um, live uncomfortably. And it's because we feel you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and um, continue to, you know, push past that comfort zone if you ever want to be successful. And so, uh, you know, what do you think of the phrase? What does it mean to you? And have you ever lived uncomfortably in your life? Yeah. So I would equate that what 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 I when I grew up and especially when I got out of college, I was learning about success and I was studying successful people. The phrase was really get out of your comfort zone. That's that's what that's what I heard it as. But it's the same thing. Well, you had no internet. Everything was uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. So get out of your comfort zone was something I heard over and over again from very successful people. And that's what you're talking about. And I agree 100% with that. But it's really saying, okay, well, what does that mean? Getting out of your comfort zone. Really, it just means going after things that you want and giving it your all and trying things. And so, you know, my key to success that I would tell people is really to persist. Well, that's kind of the same thing. And in order to persist, you have to get out of your comfort zone. Because if you're in your comfort zone, you're probably not persisting. You're just kind of doing the same old, same old. But um, it's, it's so critical that you learn new things and try new things and always be doing something that you know advances you. So that is getting out of your comfort zone. That's the way I look at it is, is um, really always doing something that um, you've not done before. And um, I'm not really in that mode right now, but that's fine, you know, because that's that's kind of what got me to here is getting out of my comfort zone for, you know, 30 plus years, you know, is always trying something more and getting to that next level and then lock it in and then try something else and then getting to the next level. That's awesome. Thanks a lot for your time today, Stuart. Awesome to have you on the show. Again, your story is, you know, very inspiring and it's just an awesome, awesome story to hear and kind of makes you believe that. You can make it happen right here in central Ohio, even if you only have two guys and you're raking leaves in your backyard. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of the episode. If you enjoyed our time with Stuart, give us a like on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and check us out on all our social media pages. Before we let you go here, we want to give one more big shout-out to all of our sponsors. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile. 
that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. To find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked up in the show notes and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Uh, Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well. And uh, we can trust to deliver high quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the store behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out maxeffortmuscle.com. Our final shout out of the day goes out to Procure Clean, a startup taking root in the wrestling world and is actually the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling. Their chlorine dioxide based disinfectant is a simple, safe way to clean and disinfect just about any surface from wrestling mats to tabletops. Simply add water and spray onto the surface you want to disinfect and wait 30 seconds to eliminate MRSA, staph, and a variety of other infectious diseases. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their support. If you want to learn more about Procure Clean and their products, check out their links in the show notes and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, guys, that's the end of the episode. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.